So before we get into today's show, we just wanted to introduce ourselves. We are three friends who decided the world needed another Stargate podcast. Rose and I are two super fans of Stargate, and Malika is not a fan yet. So why are we doing this? Because we need some diversion from our stressful jobs and the world. We will be talking about every episode of Stargate, which includes SG-1, Atlantis, Universe, Origins, and the movies. And if a new Stargate show should come out, then we'll be discussing that too. Hint, hint to MGM or Amazon or whoever billionaire finally gets the rights to Stargate. Some of us are shippers, so we'll definitely be talking about that, but we'll make sure to acknowledge our shipper glasses. Uh, what's a shipper? Good question, Moika. Keep listening and you'll find out. We will be applying current social norms to Stargate, so be warned. We realize the show debuted in 1997. A lot has happened since then. Stargate has not aged well in some areas, and we don't plan on avoiding those discussions. But this podcast is also for celebrating Stargate, its characters, its stories, and its relationships. We are going to try and keep the episodes to about 40 to 50 minutes. Since Children of the Gods is a two-parter, our first episode will be longer. And bear with us with this one. Our audio quality gets better. So that's us. We hope you'll join us. Enjoy, Enjoy the show. <laughs> is that, was that good? No! <laughs> Let's try it one more time. Enjoy, Enjoy the, the show. show. <laughs> <laughs> suck. Welcome to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing better to do. So listen, here's our show. Hello and welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm Samantha, a super fan of Stargate, and I'm here with... Rose, another super fan of Stargate. And Malika, who this is my first episode, so not a fan yet. Today we are discussing episode one of season one, Children of the Gods. So let's start with this opening scene where we have a bunch of uh, Air Force personnel playing poker in the gate room when the gate starts to activate. So you said that you thought you didn't like that it was the woman that's all like, huh, let me go and touch this thing that we're not supposed to touch. I didn't. It reminded me so much of Adam and Eve, where Eve has to be the one who is the curious and spoils it for everyone else. I thought it was interesting that she was the only one that seemed to be concerned that this giant thing under the tarp was moving. And she kept saying, hey, guys, it's moving. And they kept saying, oh, you're crazy. Or, you know, we're playing poker. So to me, it was kind of an example of the woman being the smartest one in the room. She's the the curious one who goes up to the, what is it called? What is the Stargate called? Stargate. Isn't it? No, but isn't it called like the eye or? It's called the Chapa eye. That's like the gold language. It can be called the Stargate. She's saying uh, it's moving and they deliberately will not look in a direction. It was weird. After she picks up this little ball, I guess she's scanned. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Okay. Yeah, it seemed like they were scanning to see if there was like a woman on the other side or something. Because <laughs> that's what he's looking for, right? A female host for his wife. And then a bunch of Jaffa come through the Stargate, including Teal'c. Really, I'm curious of your impressions on Teal'c. You know, at first I thought he, he's very masculine, but also kind of he seems like a bottom. Like a very big bottom to me. I never really thought about Teal'c's sexual position preferences, but I, that seems like it would. Yeah. What about these Jaffa uniforms? Are, are we're talking about the big, huge, ridiculous cobra head helmets, which seems really not battle worthy that you are so top heavy. <laughs> That's a good point. It, it didn't seem to me like these were that useful. I mean, I guess in stopping bullets, but they seem very cumbersome. How are you going to run in something like that? And they didn't stop the bullets because I think there was what, like two, two or three dead Jaffa afterwards? 
for uniforms that are like entirely metal armor and chainmail, they seem very easy to kill with a bullet. Not just in this scene, but obviously later when they're trying to fight off the the waves of Jaffa, like they're all covered in metal and like a bullet is going to kill them. No, but if you remember when Tilt has the woman in his arms and they're shooting, he tur- he grabs her and turns his back to the shooters and the bullets ricochet off of his uniform. So then how come they could shoot the Jaffa later? Maybe they right. just have that protection against the bullets on their back. <laughs> Which makes no sense. All they, all they need to do is just turn around every time they fire at them. You have to turn your back to your enemy to be safe yes. as they're shooting at you. <laughs> so the helmets are sort of a leftover from the movie. It doesn't look that great, probably because their budget was smaller than the movie's budget. But it's just one of the details that we inherited from the movie. Yeah, I think they use a lot of the visuals and the music from the movie. I think um, Brad Wright explained that the music, they use the movie music in the show. And later when he recut the episode, he they had a whole new score, an original score, and he thought it worked much better, that the music didn't really translate. And so I think, you know, at this point, they're, they're, are, they're kind of trying to force the movie production elements into the show, and it's a little bit strange. So then we get introduced to Jack O'Neill, who's on his roof doing some stargazing and then gets brought into the SGC to meet with General Hammond. I love O'Neill. I think he did a great job with the character because the character was so humorless in the movie and he just really like brought a whole level of personality to him. Although my one criticism is that I can't I can't see O'Neill with two L's. I can't see him contemplating suicide. I can. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, yeah, because the whole thing is he was, he went to the original mission to kill himself after his son died. Mm -hmm. He does have like this real deep, like self-loathing that comes out sometimes. He does, but I just can't, I I can't see him taking his life. Yeah. That was the one thing I found a little unbelievable. The the connection between the Kurt Russell character from the movie and then RDA's version. But I I agree with you, Rose. I I love O'Neill. Malika knows my great love for RDA, MacGyver. I think it's interesting that O'Neill comes in and his hair is completely uncombed. So I guess when you retire, you no longer have to comb or condition or put gel in your hair anymore. And you get to wear ridiculously long black leather coats and have unkept hair because later on, when he's actually in his dress blues, he did comb his hair and put some product into it. Well, he's retired, right? So he is, he doesn't have to. So that's what I'm looking forward to. I loved it. I was like, when I retire, I'm not going to comb my hair anymore either. So Jack does get thrown in the brig. As one should expect, someone would get thrown in the brig when one lies on one's report to one's supervisors. But here's the thing. Hammond knew when you saw them have that dialogue, both of them were clearly bluffing. Hammond knew the whole time that that O'Neill's report was was garbage, that the the Stargate on the other side hadn't been destroyed. O'Neill was trying to bluff Hammond into believing that it was destroyed. So don't let's not go there. But like the objective act of lying on your report, which I'm assuming you're signing like, you know, a police report under penalty of perjury seems like a big disciplinary incident. But because they need him because they need him. Yeah. I feel like we might need a like a splainer by like a a military splainer by someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Yes, as does this show too. I've done Wikipedia research about like, you know, the ranks and stuff, mainly because of Stargate. I have no other interest in the military. The thing that you really can't look up is the culture. And so that kind of stuff I'd be interested to know more about. So while he's in the brig, Jack gets a visit from Kowalski, who went on the original Stargate mission, and Jack reveals to him that he had a son that died. I thought that Kowalski and Jack were old friends, and I was kind of surprised that Kowalski didn't know about the son. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you on that one, because Kowalski is his subordinate. In the past, he was leading that mission. So I I think the friendship is different. And especially the last time they worked together, it was too raw. This was like over a year ago that they they went on that mission. Yeah. What is the the timeline again? It's been a year since the the past, the first Stargate mission. And then his son killed himself. Was it six months before the first Stargate mission? 
seem really recent. I don't know if it probably not more than six months. It may have even been less. Okay. So it's not even two years since his son died. So this is still, you're right. This is still quite raw with him. So who wants to start us off on this uh, boardroom scene? We see Jack in his dress blues and all of his medals and all of his little bars and stripes or whatever are where they're supposed to be for his rank. But as his hair and his, his hair, hair is combed. combed. Yes. I must say he does look quite nice in his dress blues. I'm not one for a uniform, but he, he does look quite good in the uniform. I'm a little bit one for a uniform. <laughs> no comment. I prefer I prefer the uniform over the ridiculous 80s black leather jacket. Yeah, his his off-base style, Jack's off-base style, it's a little off-base. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Not good. Deep, I deep love cut. and hate this scene in equal measure. I love Carter. I love her entrance. I love her interaction with O'Neill. The dialogue makes me want to die. It makes me literally want to fucking die. It's so painful when she says, just because my, <laughs> my, what is it? My sex organs are on the inside instead of the outside and the playing with dolls. It's just so like, who the hell wrote this and why? Why did you make us watch that? It's so cringe. But I, there's such chemistry between these two characters right off the bat that it's like, I love it also. Yeah, I, I wish they had just taken the dialogue out of there and then just had Jack and Sam just stare at each other <laughs> for five minutes. That would have been so much better because the, the looks that Jack gives her, it's, ugh, it yeah. <laughs> gets me every time. I mean, it is obvious that at the end of that scene, he probably just wants to throw her on the table and fuck her right there and there. I agree. And you know what we may want to, disclaim for this this is our first episode we me and sam are tiny bit shippers and by tiny bit i mean really really big shippers so we will be introducing that element to the show you don't have to agree with us malika you are not decided i'm assuming neutral (laughs) at this point so you may have a less shipper voice we'll see but the way that he like it's to me it seemed like a couple of things like his response was one she's super hot and I want to fuck her on the table yes but as his her superior officer couldn't do that but also he she seemed to have won him over like it seemed clear to me that he was sold by the end of that meeting that she was good to go on his team and he was going to be happy about it well you know I believed him when he was like it's not about you being a woman it's about you being a scientist mm-hmm. I believed him Kowalski and the other guy that was all about sexist bullshit. I really didn't like it. I respected the back and forth and that Sam was able to give as good as she got. But if she was a man, we wouldn't have had that scene at all. And just the idea that somebody wrote all of that out and made Carter say it, made everybody in that room say it. It just feels, it turned my stomach. There is an edited version of this episode where they do take out quite a bit of that dialogue. You don't get the same heat, I would think, between Carter and Jack, but a lot of the cringeworthy dialogue, like the the dolls, the reproductive organs, I think that's taken out in the edited version. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I've, I've heard it's the preferred one by the showrunner. I mean, part of it is like, had she just come in and nobody was sexist, it wouldn't have felt realistic, right? Like this is the military in the 1990s. We're still in don't ask, don't tell at this time, right? I think having women officers in the military was probably still fairly rare. And so, it, you know, I feel like they needed to have that sexism there. Otherwise it would have felt too contrived, but it was just so cliche to use Jack's favorite word. It was just so like a little too over the too on the nose uh, that it didn't feel like real people acting like real people. The fact that Hammond shut it, uh, he, okay, he didn't shut it down, but he stuck up for Carter the entire time. From the beginning of that scene to the very end, he was like, she's on the team. Those are my orders. He could have shut all of that down. So mm-hmm. if you, if you have somebody that high ranking who is on your side, I think that in the real world, they would have just shut it down at the very beginning and told those men to stop saying that garbage. But We needed it for the chemistry. And there was obvious chemistry. There was obvious looks. I do wonder, like, yeah, you are having this break. It's not like they're just the four of them sitting at a table and she's sort of like getting hazed and has to prove herself to a new group of people. But they are in a meeting. It wasn't, it was a lot of people at that table. Hammond is the most senior ranking. I would think you'd be on your best behavior when you're in a meeting with the general. And they were not on their best behavior. And so that was a little weird. And I can see Hammond having a like, 
I'm going to let them work it out approach to, to his subordinates. Like she's got to, she's got to prove herself. If, if I step in and defend her, then it's going to look like, you know, I'm the teacher and, you know, she's running to the teacher for help. She really needs to learn how to manage these guys on her own. I can see him making that decision and letting her knowing, also knowing that she was fully capable of it. But I, I don't know that those guys would have acted that way. So childish in front of their the general. And there were other officers, high-ranking officers there too. I mean, you don't see them anymore in future episodes, but I think there was yeah. what, like three other high Who are those guys? Officers. Yeah. They never, never spoke. I don't know. They're just <laughs> still there. And we should also point out the extraordinary whiteness up until this point. Like we've seen Teal'c and that's pretty much it. This is a white, white, white space of white, white, white people, almost exclusively. There was a black guy. There was a black there was guy. one black airman or lieutenant or whatever. So and then we have a, a black guy later in the episode, like, a, I mean, from the Air Force. I'm not defending their <laughs> casting. None not. of the speaking people at this table were not white. That's true. That's true. There was a rumor that originally they wanted to go with a Colin Powell-like person as the general. As much as I love Don S. Davis, and I think he did a great job, I, you know, it's, Sam is really the only character... I guess Sam and Jack are the only characters I can't see being played by anyone else. I could see the rest of them being played by other characters had they decided to go a different way. You could see a different Daniel? I could see a different Daniel. I couldn't see a different Tilk though. Chris Judge, I think, made that character. It's, I know it's hard to say somebody is well cast when you're used to seeing them in a role, but I, I cannot imagine Stargate without Amanda Tapping. She is the only reason the show was like watchable in the first season or the, at least the beginning of the first season. And her character is just phenomenal. So Hammond approves the mission. They all suit up and go through the wormhole. Although Jack pushes Carter through the wormhole. That was a cute moment. Well, she and- got stuck. She got stuck in her sciencing. <laughs> the wormhole well, talking about the event horizon and whatnot but to me that signaled the comfort like a comfort with them like he's like okay you're on my team I'm gonna treat you like one of my team but could you see him doing that to Kowalski I could see him pushing Kowalski through the wormhole I can Kowalski he- wouldn't have stopped and <laughs> inspected yeah. the wormhole because <laughs> that's not who Kowalski is but I think he would push him I don't think he would tell Kowalski I already adore you though no <laughs> no that was reserved for sam so they go through the wormhole and on the other side carter's feeling a little sick and, and they're all iced up too i think they got rid of the icy feeling afterwards because it was too expensive yeah and annoying to like have to revisit that issue at every single time they go through the wormhole they do explain it at some point no they yeah they talked about how at the last second through the wormhole that your molecules go, and I am not a science person, so. <laughs> and this is an actual science either. So <laughs> yeah, they're like put back together. And in that, it creates the condensation on your skin. On it makes you cold. It makes you Back together. Yeah, I have ice on me now because my all my <laughs> molecules have be, been um I want to say reconstituted. Is that the right word? I am right. Yeah. She, you know, they explain it once. I think obviously they tried out all these different things and realized it would be too annoying to keep it going. But I think they explained it once as like they like moderated the shield harmonics or something, and therefore it, t- it took away the get sick and, and really cold <laughs> aspect of traveling through the gate. <laughs> Or something like that. But yeah, they stopped with that because it was pretty annoying. This is where we meet Daniel Jackson. And this is where we also meet Sharae again. So I know, Rose, that you've seen the movie. Malik, I don't think you've seen the movie yet. Yeah. What did you think about TV version Sharae versus movie version Sharae? I like T I like movie Sharae better in terms of her character. I thought her character was a lot more three-dimensional and interesting. I mean, granted, she's only in like one scene. This is the only time we see her as Sharae in this whole episode. So she doesn't really get a whole lot of opportunity to present her personality. But the things that I did not like, okay, so she sucks Daniel's face off, whatever. Maybe that's like normal for the Abedonians (laughs) to have like very intense public makeout sessions. That's a little weird. And then she doesn't really, like she seems almost childlike and Daniel treats her very infantilely, which I really hated the whole like, oh, don't be scared, Cheree. Um, I'm like, dude, she's not your five-year-old. She's your wife. Like, 
I hated that whole thing. I hated the way she's presented. And it also seemed in contrast with the way Daniel describes her later as like, oh, she was totally different. She didn't revere me. She laughed at me. She made fun of the things I couldn't do. And none of that came across in her personality and in the scene that we got to meet her. Yeah. You know, I've never been married, but I know that if you don't kiss your wife like that, like the Especially not after like a year or two of marriage. No. And he was so surprised. He was like, what? Like that was some like random lady came up to him and like tried to hump his face. So this is the last time he sees her before she gets goulded. I I don't know. Maybe they wanted to make that a big sending off or something. Yeah. It it, it seemed odd. It does. Planted a big one on him. And it also seems like this is written by a bunch of dudes who like, I had this wet dream about some really hot girl like fawning over them constantly. But wait, before we move on, you guys forgot about uh, Carter's line about MacGyvering. That was awesome. Because <laughs> that's how I know O'Neill is from Macgy- my childhood MacGyver. So when she threw that out, I was like, yes, that was awesome. I have never in my life seen an episode of MacGyver. I don't, I don't know when it was on. I think I may have been a little too young. You should go back that's that's why he had a mullet in the MacGyver right yeah I mean I'm old I'm significantly older than you the two of you are not (laughs) not. so I had like different strokes and uh, a team and facts of life and MacGyver was right in there I did watch the facts of life and different strokes excellent shows did not watch MacGyver and so the whole premise is he gets out of situations by using like you know Back tape and hairpins and stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a great show. It's a great show. And it's it's young O'Neill. I think you guys would like it. You should go back. I don't like young O'Neill. Young O'Neill does not do anything for me. Mullets are not sexy. They then go to the map room. Daniel and Carter geek out about where the Stargate can go. And eventually they realize that the Stargate can actually go to a lot of different places due to planetary drift. Sam. Are you honestly going to skip over that horrible miniature when they walk outside and it's like the, oh my gosh, that was like, that was like seventies graphics. That was the worst miniature I've, I think I've ever seen. That was, that was bad. Yeah. They don't have, they didn't have the budget that like shows like Game of Thrones had. They can't go to Turkey or whatever the hell they went to, but I think they had probably like what, like $5 left. And this is what they came up with. But see, even Game of Thrones, if you watch the first season of Game of Thrones, they didn't have any money. And of course, if you read the books, you would also see that some of the the wars, the battles were huge. And on HBO, because it was in the first season, it was like five dudes hitting each other. (laughs) (laughs) It was horrible. So I think probably first season of lots of shows you get no money and you have to prove yourself. So I think that that's the same thing with this miniature. They they just wanted to see if they could get this pilot off the ground. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> well, I, I do have the Blu-ray version. Maybe it, it maybe it looked better in Blu-ray. Did it just yeah. look like a smudge? <laughs> it looked it looked bad. It looked bad. Uh, so while they're at the map room, Apophis and his crew attack, of course. They take a bunch of people. Tilk takes Sharae. And then somehow Ferretti gets shot in the eye, but he's a- able to see all seven coordinates on, on the Stargate. And then remember them after he's been in a coma for several days. <laughs> after head trauma. Well, we like never see him again, right? No, I don't think we so do. I'm, let's assume he got transferred somewhere. Maybe he gets his own Stargate team. Good. But we never see him again. <laughs> no spoiler. We never see him again. <laughs> okay, so Daniel. I, it took me a while to warm up to Daniel. I don't think this this episode showcases his, his best self. Yeah, I didn't much like Daniel either at first. Like Daniel's supposed to be this like, you know, character that's always does the right thing and is sort of the counterpoint to O'Neill's military. And like, you know, for the most part that comes through and I, you do like like him and care about him, but there, he has these personality traits that are very annoying. And I think in this episode, they really come through. Like he's very self-centered. Yeah. And he almost, I mean, he almost got everybody killed, almost all killed because she was up there. She's already snakeified, whatever. And he kept yelling for her and trying to run to her and which was only going to get all of those people killed, including his friend, supposed friends. So let's, can we talk about how Daniel, how Michael Shanks plays Daniel compared to, what was his name? James Spader. James, James Spader. Spader. Right, right, right. 
Let's do it. Yeah. I think he actually does a really good job of sort of emulating the way that James Spader plays him. Like, it's clear to me he really watched that movie, watched the choices that James Spader made and did like a really intentional, made an intentional decision to like emulate it. And I think he did a a good job. Like, the character feels very continuous to me in the way that O'Neill's is completely not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Michael Shanks is a great actor. I don't think he's the best actor on this TV show, but I think he did a great job sort of getting the ticks or the acting choices that James Spader made in the movie. Amanda Tapping is obviously the best actor on this show. I think Chris Judge. You think actually, Chris Judge? Yeah, I do. I love Chris Judge. I think he did a great job, but Amanda Tapping is like amazing. <laughs> No, I, I love Amanda Tapping. I, I really do. I think she's amazing. I just think that Chris Judge, just by a, a hair. So they eventually do go back, although Daniel promises that he will come back in one year and then they should bury the, the Stargate and in one year unbury it so he can come back. So now they take uh, Scara and Share. I love Scara, by the way. I love that actor. And he's was actually in the movie too. So he's one of maybe the only person that was in both yeah, I looked him up. Alexis Cruz, mm-hmm. still working. He was in Drag Me to Hell, but I couldn't find a picture of him. So I guess I'll have to watch it again. It was interesting. I mean, we don't know yet that it's not raw, that it's actually Apophis that is coming. We'll find that out a little bit later in the episode. But his little hand thing, when he does the face waterfall to knock you unconscious and steal you away, I, I like that. I believe in face waterfalls. You mean the ribbon device? Yes. <laughs> Which seems very multifunctional, right? So it does the, the face waterfall to make you docile. And then it also does the like energy blast that knocks you back. And it will kill you. I mean, it'll it kill will you kill later you later too. If you're not suitable as a wife, right? Exactly. Back to SGC and uh, Daniel and Hamid meet. Daniel wants to join the team, wants to go out and back out and look for his wife. And Hammond pretty much shuts him down. And then we we go back to Chulak. Yeah, they go to the harem where everybody's in sexy outfits. I even spotted like a dude in like a sexy flowing outfit. But then they they take the woman from the very beginning in her sexy outfit. But then we, we go back to SGC and we find out that Freddie is going to make it. Yay. And Daniel is what, just like hanging around the base. Jack takes him home and they have this, this actually very nice discussion about um, what has happened to them in the past year. Yeah. My favorite thing about Stargate, uh, especially SG1, is the relationships between the characters. And I love the friendship between Daniel and Jack. You know, two people that are have such different paths in life and such different ways of looking at the world really connect. And it does feel genuine to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I liked the relationship as well. A lot of viewers of Stargate tend to think of uh, Jack and Daniel's relationship and Sam and Jack's relationship as kind of like a um, zero sum game where if you have Jack and Sam together, then Jack and Daniel's relationship suffers. And I, I don't believe in that. I think that just because Jack and Sam can be together, that doesn't mean that Jack and Daniel, Daniel's relationship suddenly dies. Yeah. And it, I mean, at this point, you don't really get that so much, but as the show goes on, I actually think all four of these characters develop really very like robust and fully fleshed out relationships with each other member of the team. Like you, you have a really good Sam and Teal relationship. You have a really good Sam and Daniel, Sam and Jack, Jack and Teal. Like, you know, I don't think any of them take away from the others. If anything, it makes the team stronger. Yeah. Just like us. And I think we should add that even though some of us are shippers, we still have a critical eye towards the ship. Yes. We believe in the ship, but we're still going to you know, review it, evaluate it, critique it, whatever. And then we go back to the harem and the blonde air person, she is selected. I think she calls herself a sergeant. She's That's not, according to her outfit. Her uniform, yeah, yeah, in in the first scene, she is an airman and that is her rank, even though she's a woman. Because when she gets, you know, chosen, she says, I'm a sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. I think she just told them that to make them- To make herself sound more important. Yeah. (laughs) They know the difference between an air person and a sergeant. Well, obviously they don't know, but she doesn't know that. Does she even realize she's on a different planet? I don't think so. No. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because she didn't even know the purpose of the Stargate was classified. So Mm -hmm. she probably, I mean, other than them walking around in Cobra (laughs) helmet. (laughs) 
and doing crazy face waterfalls with the little gold thing on their hand and glowing eyes. How else would she know? Well, she knows that she's not home. She's not in Kansas anymore. Right. She probably thinks it's a weird cult or something. You know, the thing is, is that we are too early in this season. So the first episode to have two blondes. We need somebody and we already have brunettes. Those are the local people on this planet. Give us a redhead because (laughs) I was confused at when I watched this, I thought they were taking Sam away. I thought it they had kidnapped Sam and they were taking her to the belly snake. (laughs) All right. So the blonde air person is not suitable as a wife. So he's looking for a, a host for his, his wife. Queen. Queen. Because he's looking for his queen. So he never referred to her as his wife. It was just the queen. The queen. His queen. Okay. You know, we, it's interesting because there's a lot of things about this episode that sort of don't bear out in the late, once you like watch more Stargate, like you really don't see this kind of Gould family structure again. And so I never really understood, you know, so the Goulds are born with genetic memory, which means like the larval Gould has the memory and, you know, so they're born with full personalities, but how does this, this school, this wife is still in its Jaffa. It's so it's at, at the point of maturing, ready to take a host. How does Apophis know that's its wife? That's his wife. Does he, you know, was his genetic memory, like, was it somehow decreed or decided that this Gould would be his wife? And like, I, they also, I've never seen them have kids, like the children of the gods that Scara becomes. What is that? <laughs> they don't reproduce in that manner. It's just another Gould that they're implanting. So this, this way that this family is organized doesn't really seem consistent with how we see the Gould society later. Yeah, I I watched this episode last night when I was really tired. I had the same question. And I was imagining like these little snakes having a little wedding or something (laughs) with a veil and a tuxedo. I I was asking the same questions of Jeff and he didn't know either. So yeah, yeah, we don't really see this this family structure later on. It's just Apophis and his his queen. Our next scene is in, again, in the boardroom. Daniel comes up with the idea that the Gaud are impersonating more than just one god, so more, more than just Apophis is out there. Daniel seems to be prone to like making sweeping conclusions and like fervently believing them without evidence. Like, isn't that how he ended up in this program is he like decided that the pyramids were like landing pads for alien spaceships and he was laughed out of academia and he turned out to be right. But like, he just like goes with these theories of his full force. Yeah. And he turns out to be right. I'm trying to think of anywhere else in this series where Daniel makes a sweeping statement like this and it turns out to be wrong. Yeah. I guess we'll see when we get there because he does this often. (laughs) Plenty of opportunity. And the next scene is when Teal'c goes back to the harem, looks around for another girl, and he chooses Sharae. So why does Teal'c choose Sharae? So there is a fan fiction <laughs> that attempts to like deal with this storyline of, of Teal'c sort of explaining himself to Daniel. And in that story, the explanation is he thought Sharae would end the choosing. Like she was beautiful enough that he thought she would be the last one killed. Hmm. And yeah, she is the one chosen. So it's a, it was sort of him, Teal'c, in this circumstance of trying to minimize harm. That's a great theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought so too. It's yeah. not mine. <laughs> makes can't so, take credit for it. Yeah, he, it makes him benevolent and trying to do as little harm as possible. I mean, unfortunately, it hurts Daniel and Sheree, but I like that. What I don't like <laughs> is the fact that we have to see which I'm fine. I'm fine with nudity, but I like if I'm going to see nudity, I'd like to see white lady nudity and brown lady nudity, not just brown lady nudity. It never comes up again to no. just letting you know the nudity. Good. As much as you might want it to at some, sometimes, it does not come up again. I mean, I she has a beautiful, absolutely beautiful body, but the scene before you have the white lady and you don't, you only see her back. You don't even see her butt crack. And then the brown girl comes out and she's totally full on. Yeah. Yeah. Full on bush. A little gratuitous. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of extra shots of her being naked, like lying on the bed, on the the table. And I don't know. It felt not okay. 
It wasn't okay. <laughs> it, it was bad. And, and apparently the actress who played Sharae didn't know that there was going to be a, a nude scene. Or she didn't know there would be so much nudity. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, like it felt like it was singling out her in a way that was very objectifying. Like when you watch a show like Game of Thrones, for example, everyone's naked. Everyone who, go- who goes to work on that show knows they're going to be fucking naked. Men, women, mostly women, but also like there's plenty of dick shots on Game of Thrones. Really? Where? I can think of two off the top of my head. Don't of, remember. Like, tingling dongles like all over the place. One when somebody was being... <laughs> there was one when when he was getting like this guy this prisoner or the slave was getting pulled behind the like called drogo's caravan and he's naked and he's all flip-flopping all over the place and there was a few other naked shots but it's like okay everyone's naked it's a show where we're very happy to present nudity it is very gratuitous but it doesn't feel out of place and it doesn't feel like as objectifying and this felt very objectifying partly especially knowing that she wasn't really on board with it and it's not necessary for the story at all. It would just felt so gratuitous in a show that really was geared for family audiences. And, and again, not that I think nudity is anti-family or like, I'm not one of those people that thinks that anytime you show a nipple on TV, you're like committing some kind of moral crime, but it has to be done in a way that's tasteful and like furthers the story and is respectful to the actors. And it, this was not that. Yeah. So the snake likes her. She is suitable. <laughs> Snake is so gross. <laughs> yeah, I know. That snake is so gross. I, I sort of wish that they had kept the the like puppet-like snake because I think that's more gross than the CGI version they have later. Yeah. So this is also, this Jaffa, the, the female Jaffa that like has the snake in her and then as it's coming out to evaluate Sharae, she has this like Jaffa orgasmy look on her face. Like this is some kind of, like her head's all back and she's like, you know, making this face. And I've never seen that before or since on any Jaffa. So it was a weird choice. I, I read somewhere where she was actually billed as a Jaffa priestess. So maybe she's having some kind of religious experience or something. That makes sense. I mean, that explains it better. Like Teal never gets that look in his face when his junior comes out. Can you imagine <laughs> Teal's O face? Gross. He's not capable. His character is not capable of making that face. Okay. <laughs> Are we going to see a different look on him? Not a different look, but okay. he will be in situations where that might happen behind closed doors. All right, so next scene, uh, back to Chulak. Uh, Oh, this is when they meet the priests, or what did you call them, Malika? The turtle men. They're the turtle men. They look like turtles. They have like uh, the weird cloak that they're wearing is all scaly, like a turtle, and then they're wearing it over their heads. I never would have thought that, but it's exactly what they look like. It's turtles. That's very accurate. And they don't speak English. So the language thing is so annoying. I told Sam my theory. It's like you need, like in Star Trek, at least they made the universal translator to sort of just explain it away. And they needed to do something on Stargate. And so my theory is that like all the humans that were taken from Earth at some point after that were like implanted with these like translation chips in their brain. And so they all can speak whatever language they encounter. That doesn't explain the priests, but it explains the rest of the show. <laughs> and as somebody who has seen the rest of the series, it's annoying how they, they sort of tease you with this like whole like society of Jaffa and you never really get more than that. And that's a little annoying. Because most Jaffa, you know, henceforth are warriors, but they obviously have other elements to their society, right? They have priests, they have like, you know, plumbers, like. They must have all the plumber defies. Okay. <laughs> How do they service their plumbing needs? <laughs> Presumably there's a whole range of professions that you need to like have a society be functioning. Like who fixes the, the staff weapons when they get broken? But the question is, are they like, and I hate to bring up Game of Thrones again, but are they like the eunuch, you know? Right. Right? So are they like worms? <laughs> They're not eunuchs. They're not. There's going to be some humping down the roads. <laughs> Thanks Rose for the spoilers. But so the question is, are they like, yes, it's a race of people, but the Jaffa specifically just the warriors? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think they refer to Jaffa as like the race of people with the powers that were initially human, but then they were like modified to be Jaffa. But then do all Jaffa get a a, a worm? I think so. Like, I I mean, and they sort of develop this later, but like, I think you like biologically have to, and if you don't, you don't survive. 
but then how do they always then there's is there a one-to-one -one ratio of like symbiotes because there's a lot of jaffa um, and if, if, if the women can have babies where do the babies <laughs> go <laughs> then, right like or how can they be pregnant if there's like their abdomen is already taken to doing something else yeah they don't, you know, there's a whole lot of Jaffa society that I guess we could just make up because they don't really answer these questions. All right. So the turtle priests tell them that the town that they see is Chulak. SG-1 then goes to Chulak and they encounter a group of people having dinner, I guess. This was a really weird scene. And I don't feel like we we see this scene again in, in the show. But who yeah, are these who people? Are they? Yeah, are they humans? Are they gold? Are they Jaffa? Some they're obviously like some kind of favored group of people because they're they seem to be living a life of luxury, but they're also like worshiping Apophis. But who the hell are they? We never see anybody like them again. Oh, I was just gonna say they're descendants of Caligula. I'm I'm kidding, but they all <laughs> seem to all of these scenes, it is draperies and grapes everywhere. Grapes, it's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, flowing white dresses that are very uh, sexy and hedonistic, very what you would think Rome would be. It's very Caligula. And this is when Apophis and his new queen, Aminette, enter and Daniel yells, Share! And of course, that <laughs> everyone looks towards him and Teal comes and clubs them. Uh, and then they end up in prison. So yeah. Teal shows up and, and admires Jack's watch and sort of notices that they're different than the other humans there. But so my question is, is it just the watch, Jack's little watch, Casio watch, that that makes Teal think that these people are going to help him? I guess well, nobody else has a watch. <laughs> That's right. But he, I mean, Teal has all, already come into contact with all the guns too. I don't know if he has put it, I'm sure he has put it together because of their outfits, but when they kidnapped the Air Force woman, there was all those guns they had, it was inside that room with the gates. So he already knows that they have advanced technology and really good weapons. So does he know that these people are from that planet? I think after, um, remember when O'Neill says we're from Earth and he's like, Teal'c says, I, those words mean nothing to me. And Daniel then writes the symbol. So he would have known that because they would have used that symbol to jump to Earth. So he, I think he put the two and two together. But then in the next episode, no spoilers. Well, I keep saying no spoilers. It's definite spoiler. He doesn't, he talks about the mystical Tari and nobody, and they were the, the founding place of where humanity started and it's been lost for centuries. And then he finds out then that this is in fact that Tari homeworld. So what's going on? Does he know that this is the Tari or not? I don't think he does. Yeah, I, I think the symbol to him just means that these people are, are one unit. They're from this place and these people will probably be his best shot. Yeah, they're not like just a upstart tribe from the other side of the planet. These are people who have advanced weapons, have uh, can go from planet to planet, and have Casio watches. What's weird to me, like the Gould have all this advanced tech, right? They have these stargates, they have all this stuff, shields, energy weapons, all that, but they don't have like watches and they don't have really basic electronic devices or the people that serve them don't have even the most basic electronic devices. What, that seems strange that you'd be so impressed that somebody has a watch when you have, when you're seeing much more advanced devices being used. Well, not just that. I mean, think about what... Apophis has the tech that he has in his on his palm, whatever that is, can throw somebody across the room, can kill somebody, puts them to sleep, puts them into some kind of trance like state, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Plus, they also have their own weapons, which seem to be more powerful than guns. So they have supposedly evolved, but the people that they on these different planets haven't. What's weird is that these are ancient people that have been cut out, cut off from the world and everybody in the world has evolved, but these people are like, haven't moved at all. I mean, they're literally wearing <laughs> like loincloths and as the people were running to get to the Stargate, there was a lot of feathers and uh, way too many. 
feathers and bells for my liking. But the the it's like um this colonial ish uh, idea of the museumification mm-hmm. of ancient cultures and like Africa and China and India. The idea that you are caught in or the West's idea that these cultures have not evolved also like you have. It's the idea that everybody in Africa lives in huts. So that's how I kind of felt about these people. Because, I mean, if the if the two worlds are progressing on the same timeline, obviously cut off from each other, there's no reason why this other world wouldn't be able to build sewing machines. I mean, because we're talking about 5,000 years since a, since this point of human history of, of Apophis taking humans off of Earth, right? So this, that's 5,000 years is a hell of a long time in terms of the development of society and culture. And so why are these people still living like ancient Egyptians when humans on Earth are nowhere near doing that? I think they want us to believe that the Gaud have subjugated them yeah. so much that they they have not allowed them to advance. Yeah, I mean, they do throw that explanation around that, like, because these these people are still living under the thumb of the gold and every and the gold don't let them advance. So if anyone does advance, they kill them or take the stuff away or whatever. Even with that kind of subjugation, that's a long time to be ecstatic. Back to base camp with Kowalski and the airmen. Kowalski indicates that he is not going to leave, even though the 24 hours is almost up. And I wonder how realistic is it that this major would suddenly decide unilaterally that he's not going to leave the rest of his men because they're under orders to leave. And it seems like he could do more good if he goes back, right? If he says, hey, it's been 24 hours, but the reason they're not here is because, you know, they're still, they're captured or they're still in there. And I I believe they're going to make it to prevent them from sealing off the gate. It seems like that might be a better course of action. And this is when we go back to the prison and Apophis and Aminet select their hosts. They take Skara and Apophis says, kill the rest, which was a little surprising. You would think, well, why not just release them? Why have them killed? Hey, don't you want slaves that worship you? Right. And this and is what's when- with the caveman, the caveman in the prison. We never see caveman again. Where'd that guy come from? <laughs> caveman with like a fake hairline. Did you see that? Like there's a hairline that looks like there's supposed to be a, a, his, his hair cap but they didn't glue it down. <laughs> so there's a line across his forehead. Every single time he came on camera, I was like, oh, there is that guy again. Maybe <laughs> glue that down. Maybe, maybe that's part of his race. I don't know. But that, is, that was rough. So he must be like a Neanderthal, right? That, that like they took them off and they sort of developed their own Neanderthal race. Whereas on earth, they got extinct. I don't know. <laughs> he was definitely in a whole bunch of shots i counted like five shots yeah he might have they might have intended him to become an actual character later on in the show maybe that's why we get so many shots of him and they just didn't and they didn't because because they realized it didn't work out with that damn hairline (laughs) they ran out of glue and they didn't have a budget (laughs) to get more glue so this is where tealk saves them all I was wondering, do you guys think that Teal'c, was he waiting for people to come who could help him in his struggle or was just, just, did he just flip? I think he was waiting for someone to help him out. Because he does say like, you're the first that I believed could do it, which implies that he has seen others that he's decided not to put his faith in. Yeah. Because every time his little snake head would roll back, he kind of gave side eye to everybody. They, they shoot the uh, rest of the Jaffa. Uh, they, <laughs> Jack shoots a hole in the, uh, the prison. They should probably make those prisons a little stronger. I was going to say, it seems a real easy escape. And they all escape through the hole. Uh, Tilt doesn't know what to do. Jack says, you can come with me. You can come stay with me in my place. And as they're trying to get to the Stargate, Tilt reveals that he is a Jaffa and he has a larva gauld in him. <laughs> and he opens up his shirt and he reveals this little snake. <laughs> saying hello to everyone. Uh, and he, he reveals that it gives him health. I think he says long life, something like that. If, yeah, and without it, he would eventually die. Yeah. Although wouldn't, what does eventually mean? I don't know. Yeah, what is the lifespan of a Jaffa? I mean, he looks like 100 years old. 
Really? And wow, that's great. Yeah, and he seems pretty young still, so I think it's pretty long. I think it's a couple hundred years. Pretty sure he's a hundred years old because I'm I'm comparing him to another Jaffa we meet soon, and I, th- I thought there's that a, Jaffa was like 130. There's a point in season eight where he says he's 103. Oh, okay. Just hearing that we're gonna we're gonna be doing this for the last of our lives is kind of scary. <laughs> oh, we have so like many seasons. What have you guys wrote me into? So, if, my- if, were, if we're gonna, this is other than Star Trek, I think this is like one of the most many seasons of show you could possibly pick. Yeah, and maybe Law and Order would be worse. How many seasons of Stargate and Stargate Atlantis are we looking at? 10 SG-1, 5 Atlantis, 2 Universe, and 2 Movies. But they overlap. Some of them do. They do overlap. So we're talking probably about like 300 plus episodes. <laughs> it's, it's a long haul project. I will, I will make sure that my nursing home has good <laughs> Wi-Fi so we can continue to do this. Back to Chulak, we see some Gaud ships firing on them as SG-1 is leading the the rest of the people towards the Stargate. At some point, they look up and they see a, I guess, a missile going towards one of these Gaud ships. And it turns out that Kowalski and his people have stayed. Yay, Kowalski saves the day and shoots down one of the the Gaud ships. So they finally do reach the Stargate. They see Skara surrounded by other Gaud about to go into the, the Stargate. O'Neill yells, Skara, and Skara turns, and O'Neill thinks that it's actually Skara, but it's not. It's the Gaud that's in Skara, and Skara does his little hand thing, and Jack goes flying. I kind of zoned out a little bit with all the fighting and the killing. I watched this episode right after I watched The Kingsman, and the fighting in that was just phenomenal. It was like Jackie Chan level of choreography. So when I was watching the fighting in this, it was just it was sad. And I, and I'm not, I'm not holding a 1990s TV show first episode, low budget to the same level of the Kingsman, but I was just kind of, I kind of zoned out. I apologize, you guys. I fell down on the job. I have a couple of issues with this, these fight scenes. You have like five guys from earth are shooting down Gould missiles. Like really? It seems like the whole point is you have this advanced enemy that's an existential threat to Earth. It should not be that easy to A, shoot down their ships and B, kill their foot soldiers. And they have more powerful weapons. The air people who are fighting against them under Kowalski and whatnot, they don't have anything that would protect them from the energy blasts from the Gaffaz, Jaffaz, the Jaffaz weapons. Yeah, it just it seems a little unbelievable that they were that they were that outnumbered and that outgunned from air and land by a more advanced enemy and they still managed to not die at all. I think we just needed our people to win. And so they did. So they finally get to the Stargate and Daniel can't remember the damn symbols. I find this very hard to believe. Why didn't Daniel write this down? Or oh, memorize like, them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, memorize them. Well, she was ready with that um, code device. Her arm was like, she like she pulled up her sleeve and was like ready to punch in the code like five minutes before he opened the gate. There always seems to be like a disconnect between on the receiving end of the wormhole on the, the SGC side, they're waiting for the IDC and then they decide, should we open it? Should we not? And it feels like there's a long time before they like open the iris. And on the other side, they're always like racing through the wormhole, putting in their code and running through. I'm like, how do you not smash in against the iris? <laughs> No, but wouldn't you be worried about that every time yeah i thought that detected it said on the on the computer screen it says traveler identified traveler yeah they they knew that it was that was one of their people but it still takes them a few seconds to like open the iris verify and then the other side it doesn't seem like they're waiting those few seconds so it just seems like you're kind of risking going splat at every yeah there should be an an acknowledgement signal sent to the little wrist thingy yeah and i think they like allude to that later but this time there wasn't because she's like i guess it works i'll be the first to know if it didn't work (laughs) i don't know it seems like you might want more than that when you're also the foremost authority on the Stargate. So your life is like really not expendable. 
Yeah, put through one of the the people with the feathers and the bells. <laughs> Push that person through those guys. <laughs> you guys can go splat all you want. Right. All right. So back at SGC, we still we have you know Hammond again and Samuel saying it's time, sir, it's time, sir, it's time, sir. And then Hammond finally agrees, okay, let's close the iris. But then back to Chulak, they finally establish a wormhole. Sam does her little toot 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 with her uh, wrist device code signal, and they start going through the Stargate. Including the caveman. Of course, the caveman. I would yeah. hope that they like investigate that Neanderthal world or whatever. Let's, let's assume they were they're one of their missions that we don't hear about. <laughs> the one where uh, Carter started stripping, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Oh, and then I, I liked this. So uh, Tilk goes through and I like this little moment where Tilk gives Carter his staff weapon. I didn't notice that when I first watched this episode, but I think that was a pretty unique moment because I, I don't think Tilk gives up his staff weapon very easily. Yeah, I'd, I'd say like Tilk has clearly made, he's made the decision to trust these people completely. Like at this point, he has nowhere to go. I think he's made the decision that even if they end up imprisoning him or killing him, it's worth it to have saved that, those people. But he's made that decision that whatever happens from here on out is really not in, is, is in their hands. Yeah, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but when right, right after they shot up the, the prison and Jack told him he can come stay with him at his place, Chris Judge, his face, you can see all of those emotions that you just mentioned, Rose, in Chris Judge's face at that moment as he's walking towards that, that hole. And um, one reason why I think Chris Judge is a phenomenal actor. I thought... You know, when he turned to O'Neill and he said, I have nowhere to go, like, I think it finally dawned on him what he had done, what decision he had made. And then O'Neill saying, you know, come with me. It was a lifeline. And so I think Tilk will follow O'Neill forever. Yeah. I mean, he, I think when he made the decision to shoot the other Jaffa and rescue the people, he did not expect to leave Chulek alive. You have to like get yourself in Teal's head of how this team forms so quickly. That goes a long way as he puts his faith in O'Neill and O'Neill really steps up to, to show that he was, it was, he was right to do that. So I do think that the, this episode establishes the loyalty and the friendship between Teal and O'Neill that really follows throughout the show. Also what you said, Sam, about all the emotions that you saw on Tilk's face in the hands of a lesser actor, we wouldn't have seen that. So I, I think that O'Neill and Tilk's, their performances is what really grounds this episode and makes this not a super mediocre episode. <laughs> it is them taking the words that are on the page and really bring them to life. So after Scara, you know, waves his hand at Jack and Jack goes flying, Jack then looks pretty devastated because he suddenly realizes that Scara has been taken over by this Gauld and he's going to have to try to get Scara back. It's not as pronounced in this show, but in the movie, Scara kind of is the stand-in for O'Neill's son that gets, gets killed. Like he's really... He really plays off of him a lot and ends up feeling a fatherly connection. And I don't think it's as obvious in the, in the show. Yeah. He, and he, like, but seeing him, you know, especially what, after what happens to Charlie, seeing Scara not really get killed, but taken over by a gold, I feel like would be really devastating for him. And O'Neill takes a lot on himself. So the fact that the Garuld came in and stole Sheree and Scara while they were out on a mission. I'm sure O'Neill blames himself for not protecting Scara. And this is also the point where we see uh, the snake go into Kowalski's neck. So everyone's back. They close the iris. They hear the mat, mat, mat. That didn't sound like the sound, sorry. They hear <laughs> the, the people slamming into the iris. Yes. I have do. a question about the iris. So when the kawoosh opens and the wormhole forms, it has that like shootout, what they call the kawoosh that shoots out and it like disintegrates anything in its path. How come it doesn't disintegrate the iris? It disintegrates everything except really strong metal? Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. You're welcome. <laughs> but I don't think we know that it, that it disintegrates everything in its path yet, right? It may or may not disintegrate everything in its path, but we yeah. do learn that later that it does, that you want to steer clear of the kawoosh. And so <laughs> I just don't know why 
just putting a really big piece of metal in front of it like changes the the wormhole physics. You think they would have had an accident by now because I don't think we find that out until I know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of wormhole safety thing. Like they should have some wormhole safety trainings because there's a lot of ways you could die with not carefully doing wormhole travel like the kawoosh like not being aware of what's on the other side like maybe other planets have irises like it's not such an advanced piece of technology that even these primitive societies can't like put a hunk of metal on top of it and then you're going to get splat when you go try to go through there so the fact that they never encounter another well i won't spoil it they generally don't encounter irises is also kind of strange well, also remember Daniel told the people on Sheree's planet to bury the iris. So technically, if the Kawoosh can destroy everything, then that would destroy whatever rocks or dust or sand that they put on top of the iris, right? I mean, well, we do learn later that if you that if you interrupt, like the wormhole has to be able to form. So I think the gate has to have nothing in it. Right. So if, if there's like rocks going through the gate, the wormhole can't form. And then like, that's why when you try to dial, you don't get a connection. Got it. So the iris is like not blocking the opening, but it's just in front of it. So anybody that comes through is going to go splat. The iris is so close to the event horizon that people just don't form. Can they splat if they don't form? That's a good point. You, you wouldn't have the sound effects, but then you'd have like this big pile of bloody goo every time you did it. And they don't have that. Right. I agree. Cause I don't think they f have enough space to form. So it wouldn't be a splat. It would more be like a fizzle of, of different <laughs> atoms hitting. <laughs> like it'd be like individual atoms hitting the gate, which doesn't make a loud sound. But, but actually the event horizon, if you think about it, the titanium thing is like, could be one millimeter beyond the event horizon. So that means that they have actually formed and they made it through the event horizon. And that millimeter is, they've already reconstituted because remember they said it's the second before you step through or whatever that you reconstitute. That's why you're all cold and icy. But it's that one millimeter between the cover and the actual event horizon. That is the splat you already have been reconstituted. So it's like reconstitute immediate splat. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I think it is bodies hitting it. So you would have the blood, the bloody mess. You'd have, you'd yeah. have to like- yeah. Power wash that iris after every use. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, let the bodies hit the floor. That's what is going on. Yeah. It smell? <laughs> it's just like blood and guts and brains and bones and yeah. And it stuff. happens a lot. Yeah, it does. Like, like so. I think we have one episode where they oh, they try to get through like every half hour and you hear the splat, splat, splat. <laughs> but some of the power washing guys in charge of that. Right. We'll revisit our wormhole physics discussion as we learn more about how it works. But wormhole safety, definitely get started with that for your SG personnel. So every episode we are going to rate and it'll be from one Chevron to seven Chevrons and eight Chevrons if it's a spectacular intergalactic episode. An out of this galaxy episode. So Rose, what's your, what's your rating? I'm going to say three. I mean, I kind of, I kind of feel like you get what you need to out of this episode. It's setting up the show. You get the team formation. You get the setting up conflict with the alien race that they are going to be encountering. You establish some sort of basic rules of how, of the society that we're going to be dealing with. And that's what you get. I, I mean, I, it's not like something I really like watching on rewatch. It's kind of long. It's a little bit awkward. Some of that dialogue is just painful, but it is what it is. It's, you know, it's necessary. It's a necessary setup. I would give it four chevrons. I always watch this episode on rewatch and I watch the boardroom scene many times. <laughs> so yes, it, it, I give it four chevrons because of that boardroom scene, because I am a diehard shipper. Even with that dialogue though, I mean, I'm a diehard shipper. I love their interaction, but that dialogue makes me want to die every single time. Put it on mute and just watch their faces. <laughs> All right, Malika, what do you think? Uh, I don't, I don't mean to be harsh, but I, <laughs> I would give it 
two chevrons with Daniel reaching for the third chevron, but is killed before he's able to lock it in. So like two and a half chevrons. I I appreciate that it's low budget because it's the first episode. I appreciate that it's long and it has to fill in the gaps and set up the rest of the season, possibly even all 10 seasons. But it had it had so many upsetting, problematic scenes in it. If you guys had said, watch this episode and um, it's not going to get any better, I would be like, I'm out. You guys can do this <laughs> podcast on your own. So unfortunately, obviously, I don't have any hindsight because this is my first episode. So I, I have to give it two stars. It gets better. It gets a lot better. I mean, like there's still some stinkers. Uh, well, in 10 seasons, there's definitely going to be some shitty shows, but overall it gets a lot better. Okay. And then also every episode we ask each other, how would this episode be different if it were shown today? So uh, let's see, Rose, how do you think this episode would be different? That boardroom seat dialogue would be gone. Well, I think that in this case, we actually we do have the recut version of it so we can actually see literally how the showrunners would have made it differently and they did cut that dialogue and they did cut the nudity um, and they made some other notable changes so those things would definitely be different i would hope that that like sort of forced sexism with sam would be a little less annoying and obnoxious and also some of the like plot holes of like the Jaffa's fighting so ineptly things like that would maybe be a little bit more like smoothed over yeah i, I agree Malika, anything to add? No, I I absolutely agree with what Rose said. It needed some polishing. (laughs) And I think taking out the sexism, taking out the the nudity, or if it is, if if it was made today and it was put on, on Showtime, then tons of nudity. Everybody would be naked. Like, I'm fine with that. But just some equality in in boobs. I'd like to see all kinds of boobs, not just the brown ones. So next episode is season one, episode two, called The Enemy Within. And just so you know, we're going to go off of Netflix's uh, ordering of the episodes. Some services will say that Children of the Gods is two episodes. We're just going to refer to Children of the Gods as one episode. So hopefully you will join us next week. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform if you don't like us still like and subscribe follow us on instagram at probing the wormhole on twitter at probing wormhole facebook at probing the wormhole you can also contact us on our website at probing the wormhole.com thank you